everyone welcome 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 we are in um the sermon series come see go and tell and um as i've i've said several i feel like a broken record but um it's so much fun this is fun. i hope you're having fun because um and, and when i say fun fun as in i hope you're learning i hope you're diving deep i hope you're taking the opportunities to to draw nearer to the Lord as we open up uh, one of the Gospels, an eyewitness testimony. And that's what, I mean, don't forget, the Gospels are eyewitness testimonies. They're not autobiographies, they're not those things, they are, this is a, a, a testimony of someone who saw, who witnessed, who, or who was working with someone who saw and <coughs> witnessed what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, all the things. And we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is great. Matthew uh, gives us that, uh, brings in that old Jewish history because Matthew was uh, a Jewish tax collector. And so he, he's bringing that old stuff in and bridging it with Jesus to see the new thing that Jesus is doing. And so uh, I just had a great time just coming at the feet of Jesus and listening and, and seeing the stories, reading them again, because uh, they are stories that I've read several times before. I'm sure you have as well. And having that teachable spirit that Thane had prayed for, the Lord, show me, show me what I'm not seeing, you know, what I have taken for granted, or what I may have even, dare I say, become skeptical of. How many of you know of people who are skeptical of the faith that you profess. How many people know people who are skeptical of who Jesus is, of this whole Bible thing, of this whole Son of God thing? Exactly, right? And, and I feel sorry for the skeptics because the skeptics are playing a card game with not, all, not a full deck. They don't have the whole kind of, and that doesn't mean that, like what that, that saying means, but they're, they're out of, they don't have the proper information. You see, when we dive deeper into our faith and into our own personal discipleship and, and really open up the Bible and scriptures and, and sit and receive uh, from the Holy Spirit the truth that is, that is there. When we do those things, it, it, it drives us deeper into our faith and gives us the ability, the eyes to handle the world around us. There are skeptics around us because they look at God and they think he's imaginary. There are skeptics because they look at the world, the chaos, the calamity, the things that we just prayed for, floods and car wrecks, and they think, if all this awful stuff is happening, how can you even look at me and say that God is good? And they have all of that. And, and the problem is, when I answer, because I've been asked that question from family members alike and friends, been asked the question, how can you say he's good when 9-11 happened? How can you say he's good when all of these things that we see going on? And the reason why I can is because of, it's because of my faith. My faith has given me different eyes. I'm operating on what I believe to be biblical fact. I'm operating on what the Holy Spirit has, has convicted in my heart. I, don't, I see the bad things. I know that they are there and they affect me just like everybody else. But I have a different perspective. I can understand it a little bit differently in knowing that my hope was in the resurrected Christ. That because he died and rose again, that my hope is in tomorrow, in the heaven and the kingdom that he's prepared for me. And what's happening here is just forming me and, and making me into the man that he wants me to be. Bad things affect me. Bad things scare me. I've, I've said that to him, said to you before. I leveled up in the love department. I have three kids and a beautiful wife. I don't want anything to happen to them. And I'm actually kind of nervous that if something does, I, am I going to be able to stand firm? You know, 
The Spirit of the Lord, he gives us a different perspective. Our faith, diving deeper, gives us a different perspective. And it helps us, it helps us not to be all that skeptical as others would be. There, there once was this great skeptic. His name is Lee Strobel. Anyone know who Lee is? If I said that name? Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And there's a movie that, that is out from two, in 2017. It's on Amazon, $3.99 if you want to rent it. I invite you to rent it. It was a really good movie. I watched it last night with my wife, and, and we were very much uh, convicted by what we saw. It was, it's just, it was just good. Lee is a journalist in the, for the Chicago Tribune, or was, back in like the 80s. At least I think it was the 80s because in the movie, he definitely had 70s, 80s hair. So I'm thinking that's what it was, right? You know, the, the <clears throat> Reminded me of my dad when I was growing up. I'm like, yes, I remember that hairstyle. Uh, no, but Lee worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was a, a legal journalist. It was all about the facts. That's all he wanted. All the facts will line up and it will give me my answer. And it will give me the truth. Don't give me a truth that doesn't have facts lining up and building up to it. Well, then something happened, at least in the movie. And I've read the book, but it's been a long time. So I can't remember if this is in the book or not. But in the movie, his wife, Lee's wife has an experience with the Lord. And she starts going to church and she gives her life to Christ. And he is a devout atheist, which, by the way, takes faith to be an atheist. You ever think about that? That was in the movie. I'm like, you know what it does. It does take a modicum of faith to also be an atheist. He is a devout atheist. He didn't want his wife going down into this cult. Uh, and, 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 and he kept saying that you've, you've married Jesus, you're cheating on me with Jesus kind of thing. And so he did what any journalist would do, is challenged by a co-worker to go line up the facts. Go and put Jesus on trial. Put the resurrection on trial because if the resurrection doesn't happen, and I would also add if the cross doesn't happen, because we're going to talk about that today. If that doesn't happen, then we're not here. There's no reason to be in this building today. We can all go out and have lunch together. But we're here because we believe it's true. And so Lee set out to do that. And he lined up all the facts. And, and even though he had all the facts, there's a scene in the movie where the spirit has to kind of take him the rest of the way, even though he had everything in front of him. And, he, and, and any, any theory he had was debunked by these facts. And he gives his life over to the Lord. Well, he goes on to write different things. He goes on to pastor Willow Creek Church, which is out in Chicago. He's a, a professor now at a seminary. I mean, a total 180 of, of what his life is. He writes this thing called The Skeptic's Surprise. And it's about, it's about the probability of Jesus being the Messiah. He discovered that there's some 400 plus prophecies in the Old Testament that are for Jesus, are for the Messiah. And then he went to a mathematician and started working on the probabilities of how much, what is the probability of all 400 plus prophecies happening in one person at one time? So and that was a number that was too huge, so he did this instead. He looked at the probability of just eight of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. The probability was one chance, this is Lee writing, the probability was one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That's a figure with 17 zeros behind it. To try to comprehend that enormous number, I did some calculations. I imagined the entire world being covered with a white tile that was one and a half inches square. Every bit of dry land on the planet with the bottom of just one tile 
painted red. Then I pictured a person being allowed to wander a lifetime around all seven continents. He would be permitted only once to bend down and pick up a single piece of tile. What are the odds? It would be the one tile with the reverse side painted red. The odds would be the same as just eight of the Old Testament prophecies. Just eight of the 400 plus Old Testament prophecies coming true in any person throughout history. He goes a little further. That was impressive enough, but then a friend of his analyzed, how about 48 of those 400 prophecies? His conclusion was that there would be one chance in 10 to the 157th power. That's a number with 157 zeros behind it. So he did research and learned that there are atoms are so small that it takes a million of them lined up to equal the width of a human hair. He interviewed scientists about the estimate of the number of atoms in the entire universe. And while that's an incredibly large number, he concluded that the odds of 48 Old Testament prophecies coming true in any one individual are the same as a person randomly finding a single predetermined atom among all the atoms in a trillion, 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 billion universes the size of our universe. Jesus said he came to fulfill the prophecies. He said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. I was beginning to believe, Lee says, that they were fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. I asked myself, if someone offered me a business deal with just one chance in 10 to the 157th power that I'd lose, how much would I invest? I'd put everything I owned into that surefire winner. And I was starting to think with those kind of odds... Maybe I should think about investing my life in Christ. I'm not a mathematician. I did not validate those numbers. Please don't hold me to them. <laughs> I trust in Lee a little bit because I know his integrity as, an, as a journalist, as a fact finder. I know what the great lengths he went to in the case for Christ, talking to professors of theology, of psychology, of medical doctors. He did his homework. Cross of Christ, the story of Jesus at Calvary from cross to resurrection, my friends, is true. It is real. We're going to look at the cross of Christ today. And as I watched that movie last night, I mean, there were several times where I was brought to tears as I was gripped again by just how much the sacrifice of Christ means in my life. Just how much God loves me to send his son to take that on. Because if you're like me, sometimes you take it for granted. Sometimes you may even become skeptical of it. Sometimes we come into this building and we see the cross up there and it's beautiful. Apparently, there's a roll of quarters on the right-hand side to keep it from moving around. So there's a fun fact. I haven't really validated that, but I'm sure it's up there. And we just, we just look past it. We adorn it around our necks. We put it on our bumper stickers. We may even tattoo it on our arms. I don't have a tattoo. I said to my wife, I can be large or I can have a tattoo. I chose food instead. So that's what I did, right? Yes. 
why are there skeptics of the cross? Why are there skeptics that this even happened? That was one of the things that Lee struggled with. He was like, no, why would God even do that? Why would he even send his son to be on the cross? Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't die on the cross then. That's called the swoon theory. That something must have happened. They must have taken him down. They didn't know that he was dead. They're Roman soldiers. How are they going to know that he died? He's not a medical doctor. It's easy to take him down and he can go on with his life and, and then claim that the tomb was empty. Well, he goes to a medical doctor and the medical doctor tells him, well, let me tell you what happens with the crucifixion. One, the Roman soldier's business was killing people. So they definitely knew their business. And that if a, soldier, if a prisoner got away, they were held accountable to death. And so then letting him go probably did not happen. And that the eyewitness accounts were that he was pierced in his side and what came out, blood and water, which a medical doctor would say that is the sign of asphyxiation. And so as this medical doctor talked to Lee, and I'm not a medical doctor, I play one on TV. As this medical doctor was talking to Lee, he said, let's talk about the crucifixion. They nailed his arms to it. Most likely, probably in between the two little bones here, because on the flesh it could possibly tear. Some would surmise it was more or less there. And then on to the feet down that way. And there was a, a part of the cross that kind of supported the weight a little bit, but you hung there and you basically suffocated. And in order for Jesus to breathe, this medical doctor said they would have to, he would have to lift up on his legs to get his breath to compress. And he'd have to continue to do that until exhaustion set in and he died of, 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 of I can't say it, asphyxiation. Just kind of imagine that. But don't stop there, because before he was crucified, the medical doctor said, he was what? Huh? Whipped. What kind of whip? Yes, he was scourged. Some would say it was bones, human bones, that grabbed it and actually ripped flesh from his back. So he's lost profound amounts of blood. And so he says to leave the cross... Him not dying is highly improbable that that didn't happen. And yet there are skeptics who say, I don't know. Catholics, they keep Jesus pinned up there on their crucifixion. Protestants, we take him down. We choose to focus on the empty cross. Do we really understand the cross? Do you understand what happened? Why it happened? Well, today we're going to go into Matthew chapter 27. If you've got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 27. If there's a pew Bible, I'd invite you to grab it. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 to 44, pages 991 to 992 in the pew Bibles. I'm also going to go to Hebrews 10, so you want to put a little thumbtack there, and that's, I think, 1194. We're going to bounce around. And let me tell you, this message, I don't have a lot of fun stories. We are definitely going to go into Bible land, if you're okay with that. We're going to get in there, we're going to get nerdy, and we're going to uh, go through these scriptures. Because what I, my mind was blown as I looked at this. I've read this story umpteen amounts of times. It's the Easter story. I get it. I understand it. But something, uh, the Spirit opened my eyes to something this week that I'd never seen before. And I can't wait to explain it to you. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. But may you come before the foot of the cross today. May your hearts be convicted of what it means. And may you leave today knowing this, 
that the cross of Christ is real and has set us all free. Say that. The cross of Christ is real and has set us all free. It has happened in a moment of time, and a time of history, that's chronos time, dates, weeks, whatever, the time that marches on, it happened at a specific point of history, and it's a convergence of Kairos time, the appointed time that God has called it into, that God is working everything together to come together at this moment to change the world. Let's see what it is. Matthew 27, verse 32 to 44, the cross of Christ being real. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 32. As they went out. If you have your own Bible, underline as they went out. Do not graffiti in the pew Bibles. You are on camera. We know where you are. Just kidding. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Not Simon Peter but Simon of Cyrene. It's the wrong Simon, isn't it? Shouldn't that be Simon Peter who is there with him? But Simon Peter's nowhere to be found. It's the Simon of Cyrene. And here, free fact, Simon of Cyrene's sons are mentioned in the book of Acts as following Christ. So something happens here with Simon as well. He's there for Passover and they find him and they compel him. That means they force him to carry Jesus' cross. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered Jesus now wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Different gospel accounts have different things. One's gall, one's wine, one's myrrh, one's different. It's something to help dull the senses, to help alleviate the pain. He doesn't want it. It's kind of a callback to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you can take this cup from me, take it. But that is, if it's your will that I do this, then I, I'll, I'll drink it. He's drinking a different cup here, not this gall stuff. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, the other gospel writers had different things there. This is a Roman tactic when they would uh, uh, crucify someone. They would put the charge up there as a warning to other people. This guy was claiming to be a king, and so he's obviously the only, there's no other king but Caesar. And so he's being offed. But look what happened. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's the pronouncement of the gospel and they didn't realize it. Ha, 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 Romans. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land, until the ninth hour, real time. We know the crucifixion happened on the Friday of that Holy Week. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The title of today's sermon is called The Full Circle of the Cross, meaning that we're coming and we're bringing everything all together here at this appointed time that God has set and sending his son now to die for the sins of the world. And as we open this up, what, I, what blew me away is something I, I'd never seen before. I've always glossed over it. But I was reading a commentary who called my attention to it and looked at those first words that I told you to underline, which was, as he went out. In other words, as he went out from the city, as they've gone out from the city now a march up to Calvary. It is a callback to the book of Leviticus. We're going way back. And in the book of Leviticus, there was Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses. And Aaron was given specific instructions of how to take care of or perform the day of atonement. And the day of atonement, atonement meaning to cover, the day of atonement was this ceremony, this, this thing that the Jewish folks did in order to take care of their personal sins and the sins of their community for the year. It was to happen every year. And as Matthew says, as they led Jesus out, the sacrifices that Aaron was to do was to be outside of the Holy of Holies. And that this is where the sacrifice was going to happen. And then when he had the different bloods and whatever, then he could go in and cover the mercy seat with the sprinkling of the blood sacrifices. The mercy seat was this kind of like the Ark of the Covenant that had on it the symbols of human depravity. The Ten Commandments, the manna in which they uh, grumbled about, and then I think it was, uh, um, it was an almond rod and, and other things. So what they were supposed to do was to sprinkle the blood on these things so that when God looked down, he saw just the blood. And they were saved. Kind of like Passover. Put the blood on the door. And so when the wrath of God goes through, they'll see the blood and you're saved. Same idea. So Aaron, outside of the Holy of Holies, doing the sacrifices for the sins of the people. Jesus, outside of the city, sacrificed for the sins of the world. Hold that there. So then Aaron was told, you need to get a bull. Get the bull. Puts that down. And you need to sacrifice this bull for your sins and your family's sins before you can do anything else. And so Aaron does that, gets the blood, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. Everything's great. Then he's instructed, get two goats. Everyone hold it, two. Two. Two goats. They're supposed to be the same. As equal as they can be. You bring these goats, you set them down, and then you cast lots. One of the goats is going to be sacrificed for the, the penalty of sins. And that blood that gets drawn from that, sprinkle that on the mercy seat. The other goat shall be known as the scapegoat. And as you do that, Aaron, you go up to the scapegoat, you grab the horns, 
and you confess all the sins of Israel over this goat. And after you confess all the sins of Israel over this goat, a man takes that goat and leads them out into the wilderness, never to be seen from again. Signifying that the sins of the known world, Israel, the sins of Israel are now gone, never to be seen from until when? What, how often are they supposed to do this? Once a year, until next year comes around again because they've got a new slate of sin. So every year they have to do this. And so as history has gone on, some have recorded what they began doing was they were fearful that the goat that was to go out to the wilderness would come wandering back. And how embarrassing is that? You've done all these things, and here comes the goat again, not knowing anything that's going on. He's carrying the sins of the world, and he's back in the camp again. And so they started offing the goat. They started killing the goat out there to make sure that it didn't happen. This is all sorts of wrong. We'll make sure our sins are really good and taken care of. I know God told us to leave them alone, but maybe God's sending the ram back to kind of, <laughs> it didn't work. But now we have Jesus. And what you need to see in Jesus as they led him out and they crucified him and put him on the hill there. Jesus is both the goats. He is the sacrificial lamb whose blood is spilt for the penalty of our sins. And he is the goat that's been sent out to the wilderness to take them away. Not once a year, but once and for all. Ever remember John the Baptist? Remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, not written by him. John the Baptist says what? When Jesus is coming towards him. What does John the Baptist say to Jesus? Anyone know? Behold thee who takes away of the world. Where was John the Baptist when Jesus came to him? In the wilderness. Do you see how all of this is coming together here? In the wilderness comes the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb who takes away all the sins of the world. Maybe John the Baptist didn't even realize that, that it's not only the scapegoat that's coming, but it's the one whose blood is going to be spilt, who is going to pay the full penalty for God's wrath for our sins, as well as take them away for the entire world once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, I told you to go there. He says it this way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 14. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, says to God, sacrifices and offerings you, God, have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first 
in order to establish the second. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is null and void. It means the Old Testament covenant is now satisfied. It has now been fulfilled in Christ and he sets up a new thing, a new covenant so that our sins don't have to be atoned for once a year. Our sins are gone once and for all. Listen what he says. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's one of the most powerful verses in scripture. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. He is both the penalty of sin and the sin that person that takes it away. David, uh, um, his last name is, I can't remember his last name, David Guzik, who's written a commentary, says it like this. The first goat was a picture of how atonement is granted. Sins are forgiven because punishment has been put on an innocent party. The second goat, the scapegoat, was a picture of the effect of atonement, the penalty of our sins that is cast away never to return. Both images are found in Jesus, and he is crucified out of the city. They led him out to take. They don't realize what they're doing. They think that they're torturing this guy for professing that he was a king. But what God is doing is he's using this instrument of torture to bring about redemption for the world. In the, in the day of atonement, which can only happen once a year, they just cover the sins. This is taking away the sins forever. The penalty for our sins is death. We know this scripture says it. That's part of that perspective that we all should understand. That we deserve death for the way that we act. But that's not how God works. And he says in Leviticus, he gives them a, 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 um, a working example of how, how's that, how's that blood stain working for you? Let me show you how it's going to really be done. When I send my son, the true spotless human, the real son of man, and who takes on the punishment for a crime he didn't commit, and not only for that, for all the crimes and sins, and satisfies the wrath for human depravity once and for all. See in Jesus both lambs, both goats. The cross of Christ is real and has set us free. This is how God is loving the world and redeeming it. He set up the process thousands of years prior to the coming of Christ and now demonstrates it on his son. What an amazing callback to the Old Testament with three simple, four simple words as they led him out, as they led him out. Five words. But that's not the only thing I asked you to underline. I also wanted you to call attention to this guy named Simon. Simon of Cyrene, and they forced him to carry his cross. This also is a callback, one that I didn't see until this week. Simon, this guy, probably there for the Passover feast, 
thinking, oh, things are going down, and watching, and not forced to carry the wood for the sacrifice. There's an Old Testament story where a person was forced to carry the wood of their sacrifice. Does everyone know what that is? Anyone? Shout it out. Abraham and Isaac. So back in Genesis, first book of the Bible, going way back. Abraham, the father of the Jews. Abraham, whom God calls up and says to Abraham, hey, what? You're special. You've got faith. I love it. You are going to have a son. And from the son, you are going to have descendants, numerous of the stars. This is how I'm going to do this. This is how I'm going to bring people together, right? And Abraham's great. And he's like, but I'm old and I can't have a kid. And God's like, you will have a kid. And Abraham's like, I don't know. And then he lays with a servant person, girl, and has Ishmael and says, here, that's my son. And God's like, no, no, no. Ishmael, whatever. Isaac, you're going to have this son that I'm going to give you. And so Abraham and Sarah, they have Isaac. And it's wonderful. This is the promised son. Oh, happy day. And then God pulls Abraham aside and says, you know what? Would you take Isaac, your one and only son? Would you to go out and up a mountain, again, away from the camp. Go out up onto the mountain and just... Go ahead and sacrifice Isaac, please, to me. So Abraham, I can only imagine, was thinking, huh, that's interesting. Didn't see that coming. And grabs his son, because he's a man of faith, and super, supernatural faith. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Grabs his son, puts the wood of the sacrifice on his son's shoulders, tells his servants, wait here, we're going to go up on the mountain, worship the Lord, and we will return, which is a very powerful passage also. Somehow Abraham knew that him and Isaac were coming back because he knew the promise that God made in Isaac that from him comes descendants. So you off Isaac, there's no descendants. So God's going to do something. I don't know what it is. Could you do that? Could you take your child? Could you take someone else's child? Maybe. Could you take your... <laughs> And so Abraham lays him down on the altar. He gets ready with a knife to kill Isaac. And what happens? An angel of the Lord says, stop, right? Don't. We see your faith. And then what is provided? A ram in the thickets. See the scapegoat metaphor here. A ram in the thickets, in the wilderness, in the bushes. Here comes this ram, this lamb, this goat, whatever, some animal. Here it is. And God provides it so that Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed. Jesus is God's one and only son. He is the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb. He's the ram in the thickets. And Simon of Cyrene carrying the crossbeam, see yourself in him. See yourself in Isaac because the cross beam, the wood of the sacrifice, that is for us. We're supposed to be there, not Jesus. It is our sins that is necessitating this cross. And so there's this great little action of a human, sinful human carrying the cross. See that as a reminder of like this is supposed to be us. But God says no to Simon. It's going to be my son who is going to take on the sacrifice so that you don't have to. So that you all don't have to. And he nails his son up to the cross to pay for all of our sins. 
This is just two little lines. There is so much more in this passage. We don't have time. Look up Psalm 22 and read this passage and you will see the connections that were outlined in Psalm 22 that are coming happening right here. And how the chief priests mock Jesus and say, obviously, if he's the son of God, let him come down. See in it a recall to the temptation of Christ when Satan said to him, well, throw yourself down and I'll give you everything. God is bringing it all together. All together. What is the problem here with the chief priests? What is the problem with the skeptics with the cross? Why would God put his son on there if he's all powerful? Well, the problem is, is that humans always hold up power and might over sacrifice and humility. They think that the, the Romans, the, the, the chief priests, they're looking at God as all-powerful. You are all-powerful. Surely, if this is God, he's got the power to get himself down and we'll see it. But they've completely missed it. The cross of Christ, what God is doing to redeem this world so that our sins are fully taken away is not about overthrowing governments. It's about overthrowing us from the throne of our lives. It's about saving souls. It's about, dare I say it, the most fundamental, the most powerful thing that God can do. It's about love. Look at the cross. Really look at it. And see his arms spread out and God saying, I love you this much. That even the likes of you, of everything that you've ever done, of everything that you ever will do, of the mistakes, of the toothpaste that you expel out of the toothpaste bottle. I love you that much to take away the penalty of those sins so that you can come to me. The cross of Christ is really, really real. And it has changed everything. So often we want to rush to the resurrection because that's the great news. Up from the grave he rose, yay. But we need to sit here first and know that the Son of Man, a human, a divine human, but a human nonetheless, a real man in history, was nailed to the cross for a crime he didn't commit so that all of our crimes and our transgressions and our sins may be completely removed. Not covered, but removed. In him the wrath of God was satisfied and it has made all the difference. So what is your story to tell people? It's not a glamorous thing to say, well, God loves you because he killed himself for you. Sign me up, right? The good news is the reason why he did this. And that was his immense love for you. Share with people that. That God so loves even them. That he gave his one and only son. That whosoever believes in him shall inherit eternal life. Shall not perish, but inherit eternal life. The cross of Christ is real. And has set us all free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your amazing blessings. Let us never take for granted the cross. 
Let us never look at it as a necklace, as a bumper sticker, as a tattoo. Let us never look at it as something that we just adorn because we're not thinking about it, but that we put it on and we really remember, really, really remember the time in history that you marched up on that hill of Calvary, bloody and bruised and stumbling and were nailed there and hung there for us with the full ability and power to come down and yet you chose to remain. Let us see in that an immense power of love, the power of a great affection. May it seize our heart to know the truth that you call us by name and you love us. And that has made all the difference. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh my gosh, remember this good news. That he loves you that much. And that there is nothing that you can do to separate you from that love. And that if you believe and receive, you are given the honor and glory to be called children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. Go now with that good news. It's a good news that people need to hear. That is your story to tell. That God loved you that much that he climbed up on that cross as his son Jesus. His blood spilt running red to pay the penalty for our sins and to take them away once and for all. And so you no longer live in that captivity. Share that with people. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.